0: This is Building Optimal, a podcast to help builders and remodelers take your construction business to the next level. Welcome to episode 30, Building Optimal Radio. Joel Block is a longtime venture capitalist and hedge fund manager, who's one of the foremost authorities on creating real estate funds and syndications. I've known Joel for about a decade I've had the opportunity to visit with him several times. I'm telling y'all, this guy knows his stuff inside and out. I always learn a ton from him. Some of this may be a little foreign to some of you, but for those of you who are developing properties and raising money, I encourage you to take the time to study the subject. It's a great lever to grow your business if done the right way. Be sure to check out Joel's website, syndicatefast.com. He's got some great videos on there as well as other helpful services. And as always, enjoy the episode. All right, Jill. So the process of raising money is a multi-step journey. I want to hit on several of those steps right now, since we have the opportunity to learn from your expertise. Let's start with the chicken or the egg for many of us. And that is, As we're business planning, we need to know about how much capital we have access to in order to know what and how many deals that we can pursue. But then on the other side, in order to tell us how much they will earmark for us, investors usually want to see the deals first. So, is there any way to navigate this so that both the investor and the builder can get some clarity without commitment?
1: You know, there are several ways that guys deal with this uh, problem and it sort of depends where you are on the experience continuum in your business. So, you know, when you're, this this is a problem that people have when they're earlier in their careers than later. And let me also explain that there's several different kinds of financial vehicles. One is a syndication. A syndication is a project. You're talking about a syndication project where we're going to be doing this one certain thing. We're going to build it. Uh, We're going to buy the land and title it, you know, get the plans made, whatever it is. And then that's a project right there. The better way to do it is to create a fund that finances these things over and over again. So the difference between a syndication and a fund is that a syndication is a project with a finite life. Uh, You take the money in, you do the project, you sell it, you share the profits, and you give the people their money back. That's it. A fund on the other hand is an ongoing situation. It's not perpetual. It does end eventually, but the money comes in, you do a project, you sell it. Now what's different is that you give the people their share of the profits, but you retain the principal so you can go do the next project. And funds are much more sophisticated. They're much more uh, preferable for people that have a good track record and good background. In fact, wealthier people actually prefer funds. They don't really want to take the money back, give it back to you, get it, give it, get it, give it. And the other thing is funds tend to do more than one project at a time, which creates a little bit of an insurance effect. So there's a a little bit of diversification. So we're doing project A, the syndication doing project A only, but the fund is doing A, B, and C. So if any one of them underperforms, it won't be, uh, you know, it won't tank those particular investors. It'll be spread across and share the risk with the other deals. So uh, that's kind of a a long-winded answer to your question. We can get more specific if you like. That's
0: actually right on with what I was wanting to hear. A lot of builders I know are following project-specific syndications. Do you see a lot of builders that are actually creating these funds?
1: Yeah, well, listen, so here's, here's what you do. So You set up a fund to be the money and then you find the project that you want to do. So you take some of the money from the fund and you set up a separate LLC. Now it doesn't have to be a separate syndication. So you're not going to go raise the money because the money now has all been raised, but you take some of the money from the fund and you go put it into a syndication project or a project called apartment building number one or home track number one. And then you find another one that you want to do. And now you've got the money set up and you put it into that. So, Uh, Yes, guys are doing that, but it's more sophisticated guys, and uh, it might be aspirational or it might be a goal for some people that they can move in this direction, but it is absolutely the better way to do it many, many times. Is there usually a critical mass
0: that somebody has to hit for fun to make sense, or is it just dependent on – every particular situation.
1: You know, Listen, there are guys doing you know $100 million projects and there are guys doing uh, $3 million projects. So you can't make a blanket like that. But these tools are very flexible and they'll work regardless of the size of your operation. And they're not that expensive to set up. And they're very, very powerful tools to give you lots of control over the investors, lots of control over the money. And they're really very desirable. The other thing is, That when you go to a bank and the project's been financed by a fund, uh, that's a pretty good balance sheet. That's even a little bit better than the balance sheet of the syndication.
0: Okay. And I imagine that lenders may actually look favorably on guarantees. Yeah. Even more so if the fund is guaranteeing the project as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Syndications and funds are not all that different. Uh, The main difference is that you don't distribute out the capital or the principal at the end when you liquidate the project and you retain it and you do it again. But that by itself enables the fund to get bigger and bigger and it just allows the fund to grow and it just allows it to be a more powerful uh, vehicle.
0: All right, Joel, I know that you talk about this in some of your videos, which I highly recommend by the way, and we'll link to in this episode, but million dollar question that everybody's always asking, where do we find those new investor leads?
1: Well, uh, let's back up a couple steps. I, I, I know you want to, uh, you know, get right to the, uh, frosting on the cake there, but let's, we got to talk about the cake first. You know, when I, when I talked about that, that you need a steady stream of leads, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I didn't go to college to get that line by the way. I mean, that's like such a basic thing. Uh, but here's the thing is, I didn't say that in isolation. It really takes three things to be successful. One is, of course, you have to have leads. That's mandatory. But second, you have to have a deal that people can say yes to. They have to say yes. And if it's if it's a weird deal, if it's an off market kind of, if it's a, if it's just something strange about it. In other words, sometimes the attorneys will write deals that are so one-sided that the investors don't want to do it. Or sometimes the deal is just so awkward or the rates to return aren't right or something is wrong with it. And if you don't have a deal that they can say yes to, then all the leads in the world are going to go to waste. The second thing is that you have to have, in addition to a deal they can say yes to, you have to have a track record that they get comfortable with and are willing to bet on. Because you, know, you could have the best deal in the world and all leads in the world and if they don't have that confidence that you have the ability to pull off what you're telling them Now you may take that for granted. Like, Oh yeah, of course, these are things you take these for granted. You cannot take these things for granted. Uh, the track record is critical. You have to market your track record properly and the quality and the construction of your deal. I mean, you're constructing buildings, but I construct uh, structures and financial and legal structures. You know, I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I work with the attorneys and I instruct them on how I want all this stuff set up for the people that we build funds for. And we probably have constructed uh, more funds than probably any other company in the country. I mean, our, our syndication and hedge fund symposium program has spawned hundreds and hundreds of uh, new syndicators and fund managers over its last decade. So it's really important that you have those three things working together. Now, that being said, Uh, The guy who's operational in, uh, you know, and working with the GCs and are working with the contractors, the subs and all the many different people that are part of your formula, they may not be the chief fundraiser. You know, you may have to have somebody on the team who's more of a fundraiser. And that's why I always refer to the syndication in the fund business as a team sport, because it really does take a lot of people. If I was on the team, I wouldn't be the guy that would be in the field. Uh, telling the guys wearing the hard hats what to do. That just wouldn't be my role. So there's different people on the team and different people have to be good at different kinds of things. So this is really a place. I think the real answer to your question, Jared, is that there has to be a team in place that together accomplishes all of the objectives that you're talking about. Tie in what you just mentioned into the
0: fund structure that you introduced earlier. If we're out trying to sell investors on this fund, do we need to already have some properties identified, some concrete examples to show them when we're out pitching this fund?
1: Let me, uh, let me clarify something uh, because there, there is a disconnect. Uh, when, I, when I talk about the deal, see, the investors are not investing in the houses that you're building. The investors are investing in the fund or the financial structure that you've created and the financial structure is dealing with the real estate and they're entirely different things and you really have to think about them differently. Now you're kind of bypassing the fund and you're going right straight to the real estate. You're thinking about, is the real estate a good deal? Well, of course the real estate has to be a good deal, but that's not what the investors are buying. What the investors are buying is shares of stock in this fund or syndication that then is going to manage the process. So the deal has to be good. The real estate deal has to be good. But when I talk about the deal, the structure, something they can say yes to, I'm really talking about the syndication or the fund because that's, what's going to own the real estate ultimately. And they're very different things and they don't come out the same in the wash because the fund or the syndication has a little bit of its own overhead. There's gonna be fees that are taken by the people who are putting the deals together. So what trickles down to the investor at the fund or syndication level is not identical to the real estate deal. So you really have to be careful in your language and the way you think about these things in order to be accurate with your investors and with yourself. So does that help a little bit? Yeah, it does.
0: And it actually reminds me that there's some real nuances to this concept of building and creating a fund. So it seems like you really need team approach to make sure that you've got all the right pieces in place.
1: Well, yeah. So listen, setting it up. I mean, we help guys with that. That's not the end of the world. But what you need in addition to what you have now, you know, right now you have your guys that are responsible for building the thing. But somebody has to really be focused on the money, uh, not only the banking money, because you might need some construction financing or something else. Somebody's got to arrange the capital so you can buy the land and make the other capital investments in the architecture, the engineering and the other things that you got to do. So in a syndication or fund environment, you know, that person who's raising the equity uh, because it's not going directly into the real estate, if they're not careful, they might have to be licensed. Now, most of the time, we all work in this exemption where we don't have to be licensed. But there are, are times uh, when an attorney would tell you, you got to be a little careful. So that's why all these activities have to be supervised by an attorney. Anytime you're dealing with an LLC, you're selling private securities. And private securities are exactly the same as AT&T stock. The Securities and Exchange Commission looks at public and private securities as exactly the same except for that they're regulated a little bit differently as long as you're selling those private securities to wealthier people based on, you know, the rules we can talk about the rules, but as long as you're doing it the right way and it's supervised by an attorney and you're doing everything the way you're supposed to, you're going to be fine, but you need to be focused. Raising money into a syndication or fund is a little different than getting somebody to put a mortgage against the property. And that's kind of, you know, there's, it's a different level of complexity, but there's only really one right way to do this. There are not a lot of alternative ways to raise money for this type of transaction. So you really have to do it the right way, or you're going to find yourself in a pot of trouble uh, at some point in the future. I want to come back to the syndication strategy, because
0: I also want to give our listeners an overview of that. And one question I have for you is every time we syndicate a deal and are taking someone else's money we need to make sure that we have a PPM or what's referred to as a private placement memorandum on every deal is that correct
1: Well it's not per person it's but you need if you do another deal you're going to want to set up another company and sell stock and basically what you're doing is let's say you're going to use that money to buy land. What you're really doing is you're taking the land and you're slicing it up like a loaf of bread into shares of stock that people can buy. And so uh, if you have a deal and you have, uh, you know, let's say 50 shares of stock available for sale, uh, you can keep selling them until either you've sold all 50 of them or until the clock expires because there's always it's either a clock or a maximum number of dollars. So you can keep selling until that happens. And then let's say you don't you run out of time or, you know, or something happens, then you can set up another structure to raise more. But yeah, that's, that's all you got. You got, um, you got to sell what you have. That's part of the structure that you build. I
0: think it's probably a safe assumption that a lot of us are not using all of the proper required documents that we should be.
1: Well, and here's, let me tell you the problem with this. And this, you know, builders in general have a lot of liability. They have that 10-year liability. I mean, they've, they've got developer liability. They've got a lot of different responsibilities. So it's a complicated business to start with. And then when you layer on top the financial responsibility, so here's really what that is. The Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates all the transactions related to stock, even if it's private stock in an LLC, they basically don't really like people like us taking other people's money. They don't really like it. Now, they recognize it happens and they have to deal with that, but they don't really like it because people lose money. And sometimes when those people lose money, they go broke and they end up on welfare and then the government's got to take care of them. And so the government really wants to be careful that that doesn't happen because they don't want to become responsible for any of us. You know, that's really an important consideration for them. So there are very specific rules. And here's the most important part is that a syndication is really a relationship between an active person and a passive person, If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a question or two. They're, they're easy questions though. You know, in, in that relationship between an active person and a passive person who has all the information, well, the active person, of course, who has all the power, the active person who has all the market Intel, the active person, of course. So the passive person is at a tremendous disadvantage in this relationship. So the government has set up rules where the passive person gets very specific kinds of benefits under the law. And that's what securities attorneys make sure that the active people are treating the passive people fairly and that they're giving them all the information they need and they're doing everything. Cause here's the bottom line. What you don't want to have happen is for a passive person. uh, Let's say that something goes terribly wrong with the deal. You know, it happens, right? You know, markets change, interest rates change. uh, Meteors come out of the sky that don't get insured. There's all kinds of things that could happen. And all of a sudden, there's no money left. And the investor calls you up and says, what happened? You know, oh, well, we lost our thing. Sorry, it's not going to work out. Well, please send me my money back. Well, what do you mean send your money back? It's gone, didn't I? I just told you it's gone. Uh, Well, I, I didn't realize that it was possible for a meteor to come out of the sky and crash into the building and it wouldn't be insured. If I would have known that, I never would have invested. And so you you absolutely must put into your deal all these different little disclosures and disclaimers and, and and warnings about all the things that could go wrong. And attorneys, that's what they do. They're they're fantastic at this. They scare the pants off all of us. You know they're they're so scary. But they they put all the stuff out there so that if something does go wrong, the investor can't call up and say. Uh, Well, if I'd have known that, I would never invested. So here's the bottom line. The investor, if they're not satisfied, they can invoke the R word. And the R word in our business is about the worst thing that there is. Rescission. Well, okay, tell you what. I, I didn't realize that a meteor could come out of the sky and land on the thing. And we didn't have insurance. So just send me my money back. Well, I don't have any money. Project's gone. Well, tell you what. Then just sell your house and give me that money. And that's how serious this is. I mean, the uh, if they make a claim and they get a rescission order, believe me, uh, you have to do what has to be done to get them whole, including some of your personal assets. So it is very important that you follow the rules, that you're doing it right, because what builders don't need is to uh, complicate or compound the liability that they have from all the other important things that they're
0: busy doing. I've used dozens of different deal structures in the past, but my plain vanilla is 8% preferred return and then splitting the profits 50-50. Yeah. And I may offer a little more or a little less based on the risk profile of the deal and how the target returns match up against typical market rates. Now i realize that this certainly may not be the optimal approach in your opinion. So do you have a favorite structure for new home construction deals?
1: You know, I do, and there there is a very significant flaw in what you just described, but um, I, I hate to be squeamish, but I don't like to talk about fees and fee structure in a public forum. I do talk about it at my symposium. You know, I do a lot of expert witness work uh, where attorneys and courts of law call me for my opinion. In a development environment, 50-50 is always fair, but there are some nuances uh, that I think are usually missing they're missing from 99 percent of people's deals that when I tell people what they are they're like oh my god how did we overlook that but most attorneys don't know about it just listen I've been a practitioner in this field for 30 years I started at Pricewater I was doing tax work for syndicators uh, I've seen a lot of these deals and uh, and I've picked the best parts out of all of them so uh, I apologize in advance for not wanting to share more but I'm not going to share more okay Fair enough. Let
0: me probe in a little bit of a different direction. Are there any sort of theoretical considerations that you can illuminate for us that we would want to identify and consider as we're
1: thinking
0: about how to structure our deals?
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I I think that the uh, syndicator needs to be paid fairly for their services. Uh, That means that they need to get fees off the top they need to be reasonable. I will say that I'm not a fan of overhead type fees. Like an asset management fee is only paid to the builder, the developer, the syndicator, because there's a builder or syndicator, but the construction fee, the uh, property management fee, the, you know, whatever the, uh, the, the GC fee, that's going to be paid no matter whether it's going to you or third party. And so, I much prefer those direct relationships where it's being paid to you or a third party might as well pay you. I feel very good about that. You set your, your back-end money based on what your uh, value contribution is. So if you're doing building from ground up and you've created almost all the value out of thin air, 50-50 is always fair. And if you're buying AAA apartment buildings and you're just collecting rents, then maybe a 95-5 or a 90-10 is going to be So you have to really kind of find your way based on, on your contribution of value. The other thing that I would tell you is there are a lot of guys who get very greedy and very grabby and what they do is they say, um, you know, this is such a great deal that I want to make as much money as I can and then kick out the investors as fast as I can. And I always find that to be problematic. I just don't like it. I really find that it's much better to let the investors make money for you. Here, here's the thing you got to, this is an attitude that I have. This is the long game. This is a long tail business and we want to get investors that want to be with us for a long time. And if once in a while they make a little extra, so be it, they're going to come back. They're going to bring their friends and you're going to build a better business as a result of, of that relationship that you create with them. And so I don't like to do these kinds of things where, okay, it's uh, it's 70-30 until you get this much money, then it's going to flip and we get the 70 and you get the 30. Those kinds of things I find are generally not well-placed. Now, sometimes uh, there are circumstances where that works, but for the most part, I think a 50-50 developer arrangement is very normal. It's very well understood. There's a couple nuances to it that I would change, but, but by and large, it's pretty good. I want to talk
0: about co-guarantors for a second, because sometimes banks decide that they've bumped up against their exposure limit with us as borrowers, and they want us to bring somebody else on to help shore up the credit so that they can make the loan. Is there a different profile for a co-guarantor versus our typical investor we'd be looking at, or should we be fishing in the same pond for both? Uh,
1: I would say it's uh, probably a little different. It's probably somebody who's a little more sophisticated. You know, anybody who has money laying around could potentially be an investor, a passive investor in one of these kinds of transactions. People may prefer uh, apartments. They may prefer a portfolio of rental homes. They may prefer building from ground up. So different people have different tolerances. They have different preferences. And you generally find that people will uh, do what they feel the most comfortable with. Because if they're not really familiar you know, with your type of asset class, uh, they're not going to have an easy time reading your materials and determining whether it's the right kind of deal for them or not. So uh, I would say that people who are, I mean, in general, they're somewhat sophisticated. But in order to be a lender and really have some exposure you have to be a little more sophisticated than, uh, than your average cat. You just have to, we typically will pay those guarantors, uh, between uh, two and three points a year. And by the way, if the builder is capable of guaranteeing the loan himself, I don't see any reason why the builder shouldn't also be paid the same guarantee fee that would be paid to a third party. And the only difference is that If you're going to pay yourself, it has to be disclosed in your documents. Uh, But if you're going to pay a third party, uh, you don't have the same requirement because as the managing partner of the syndication, you can do what needs to be done to get the job done. Uh, It's going to reduce profitability a little bit, but you can make whatever decisions you need to make along the way. Joe, you
0: just brought something up I want to visit on with the guarantee fee. Actually, it ties into a larger discussion, and that is... The way that I always approach deals is I like to try to look at the different value buckets and who's bringing what. And if you have somebody that's guaranteeing a loan, it makes sense that they get their piece of value for that. And perhaps that's recognized through a fee. And similarly with with builders, we do it a little differently because the builder is the developer and also the general contractor. So as a general contractor, it makes sense that they get that general contractor fee cover our expenses in the project. But bottom line is it makes sense to me to look at projects through different value buckets and then make sure that everybody who is responsible for those buckets of value is getting properly compensated. Is that the way that you look at as well? Does that align with your beliefs?
1: Yeah, it, it is. But let me, let me, uh, Let me give you a kind of a conceptual framework about how to think about this. You're getting paid for two different things. You're getting paid for being smart. And being smart means that you find a project that you can successfully accomplish. You get the job done over a couple years period of time. And you sell the project for more than you're into it for. That's being smart. But in the course of, of being smart, you spend a lot of time. So you also need to be paid for your time. If you're only paid for being smart on the back end, you may go into a tremendous amount of debt taking care of your family and all your other responsibilities that you have, which include uh, payrolls and other things. So you want to be very careful to be getting paid for your time so that when you get your smart money on the back end, that that, in, in fact, is all goes to the bottom line. You should be able to pay all your overhead with your ongoing money from your GC fees, from your guarantee fees, whatever the fees are you're going to take. And we've got lists of these things that, you know, that we, we share with our, uh, promoters and sponsors that, that we deal with, but you should really be whole at the end of the project, just from that. Now you shouldn't be rich, but you should be whole. And then it's the smart money on the back end that makes all the difference. That's the frosting on the cake that makes all the difference. And so when you think about it like that, it's really incumbent on you to collect those time fees because somebody has to be the GC, might as well be you. Somebody has to be the real estate broker, might as well be you if you're licensed to do it. Somebody has to arrange for the debt and broker the money, might as well be you if you're licensed to do it. Or somebody on your team, if you're a bigger operation, you might have people on your team. But this is how you pay for your team's progress. You just have to make sure that anything that you take out of the deal is disclosed because otherwise it's going to be called self-dealing and that is a big problem that you want to avoid. Uh, That's the kind of thing that is very problematic. So that's why you got to have attorneys and other people supervising this type of transaction. Okay. I think you made a very important
0: point. Thank you for that. I want to move on to the next part of the process. And so now let's say we've got the money, we've got the deal. Do you find there's a best practice with how to keep investors updated and informed as the project's progressing?
1: Yeah. You know, listen, more contact is better than less. I'll readily admit I'm not that great at this, but more is better. And if you just send out uh, pictures, a video, if you have a website, if you have a password protected private thing, and you shared something every month or two, people would eat it up. They would be very thrilled. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, how you do this, if you pay the uh, all the money at the back end when you sell the project, or if you maybe raise the preferred in advance and pay it out uh, you know, from the beginning of the project, you could do it either way. But people are gonna be waiting a long, long time for their money and they're not gonna be, uh, they're gonna just be nervous because it takes, there's a cycle, there's a long cycle in your business. And so you really have to make sure that uh, you're keeping people engaged and helping them really understand what's going on because you probably have another project that's going to start while this one's already going. So instead of them saying, well, we'll see how this one goes at the end, if they can see it's going and they're getting regular correspondence, they're going to be much more inclined to, you know, participate in another deal with you here pretty quick. Okay. While I have
0: you, are there any other pitfalls that we haven't discussed that – come to
1: mind? Wow. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that one of the things that I see go wrong the most, you could have the greatest leads, you could have the greatest track record and give people some kind of a really onerous, unfriendly document. Uh, you need to make sure that the terms with your investors, your investor terms are investor friendly. And this is a little bit technical and it's not technical from the building point of view. It's technical from a more legal and investment point of view. Uh, things like, let's say grandpa comes to you, he's a investor in your deal and he says, I want to give some shares to my grandkids. Sorry, we don't allow any transfers. Well, that's pretty investor unfriendly. Now, personally, I kind of agree. I I don't allow transfers either, but inside of a family, you might want to allow transfers. So there are lots of reasons why you want to allow or not allow things. Uh, You know, how you do your voting rights. Very, very important. How you do your fee structures, how you do your profit sharing, your hurdles, your waterfalls, all your different components. It's really important that you get it just right the way you want, because let me just tell you something. You're going to be stuck with these documents for years. Once you create these documents, here's the, the most important thing of all this is the one opportunity you have to write the documents exactly the way that you want them. And if you miss something, if you miss a fee that you wanted to charge, the investors are not going to approve it once they sign and send in their money. They're just not. If you make a mistake of any kind, you're stuck with that. That's if you omit something, if you overlook something, whatever it is, you're stuck with it. So it's really important. And the way we deal with this is that, I help people construct the business side of their material. And then we send it to the attorney who does the legal side. So we really have two different sets of eyeballs that are looking at these deals that are helping to kind of figure this out. And I would tell you, you need to do the same thing. You need to have an attorney and a business person. And here's the problem. Many attorneys, they give out business advice and they shouldn't. They're not licensed to do that. They're probably not even very good at doing that. Uh, They're not practitioners. They sit in offices. They do not deal with investors all day long. And it's one of the places where things go wrong. So they could create an investor unfriendly deal. Uh, They could potentially uh, not be in touch with the marketplace. And and then you don't have the right business terms set up. So you really want to be careful that when you're doing these deals, that you're really thinking very carefully through the business terms. And then you turn them into legal terms. Because there are significant implications. If somebody sends it to their attorney uh, for review, and the attorney looks at it and says, "Gee, this is this is really going to hamstring you. It's really not going to be good. You know, you're not going to be able to move your shares around. You won't be able to do this." And uh, you know, people are sensitive to that. You know, I mean, especially as they become larger investors. And a lot of uh, you you may start it at 50 or 100 grand a person, but those relationships will grow over time. And you know, that's really important to remember. All right. Before we go, I just want to make sure people know
0: where they can find you. So like I mentioned earlier, I love those little short videos you do. So people can go find those online and, and sign up for uh, your content at syndicatefast.com. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Any The best thing to do is once or twice a week, we send those little videos out. People send me questions, just like you're asking me questions now. I mean, I've got... I've got a hundred questions lined up in a notebook and we just keep picking them out and we just do these little videos, just like dear Abby style. You know, they ask me a question. I answer it. Uh, we're not selling anything. Uh, you know, if you want to come to our symposium, you gotta qualify in, you gotta, th- this is not a beginner program. It's not a wannabe program. It's for people who are already sophisticated in real estate. They just want to get, they want to get a hold of better money. They want to ditch their private money lender, their hard money lender. They want to get high quality wall street quality capital. Uh, from individual people. And we really take the kind of the private placement stuff you're talking about to another level, because there are nuances that will make enormous, enormous differences. So even something as simple as the fee structure and the profit sharing that you described, there are small adjustments to that that make an enormous difference in a deal over a couple years of a uh, period of time. So You know, we we share that stuff. We share openly with a small private audience in person twice a year. Uh, The next one's coming up in October of 2019 in Las Vegas. And people should get on our list. They should look at our videos. Uh, They'll learn a great amount from it. And and if it's right, they can make an appointment, get on my personal calendar, and I'll talk to you privately. Okay. So everybody can
0: sign up at syndicatefast.com.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a couple pages, you know, you go through the pages and then they'll start getting some emails and and then my contact information is there and they'll find me. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a- okay. And then your deeper dive
0: is dealmakingsymposium.com. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's the website and uh it's really it, it's the syndication and hedge fund symposium. So it's really about how to set up syndications and hedge funds. And that's what your people need. I mean, that's that's exactly what we're here talking about is, uh, it's the way that Wall Street arranges private capital. Joel, this was great. I've been wanting to get you on the show
0: for a long time. So thank you for coming.
1: Hey, man, well, listen, uh, I'm very happy to, uh, you know, share some intel with you guys. And I hope that uh, our paths will cross again in the future.